Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Hello and welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. My name is Sam Dover. I'm a Senior Beauty and Personal Care Analyst for Mintel's UK Reports. And today I'm joined by my colleagues, Nick Alexis and Alex to talk about the future of e-commerce. So we know that e-commerce is big business nowadays. We know the online channel has been accounting for a bigger share of retail in recent years. And we know that COVID has hugely accelerated that shift. So with more people buying more stuff online than ever before, I want to talk to you guys basically about what is next. So before we get started, um, if you could all just briefly introduce yourselves. So let's start with Alexis. Hi, I'm Alexis DeSalva Kaler. I'm a senior retail and e-commerce analyst in the U.S. Hi, I'm Alex Molinazzo, and I'm a trends analyst covering the U.S. and Canada. Hi, I'm uh, Nick Carroll, associate director for research at Mintel EMEA. So retailers here in the U.K. and Europe. Amazing. Thank you. So I think a good place to start, because we get asked about this a lot from our clients, is about D2C. So when we say D2C, we mean direct-to-consumer for anyone who isn't familiar with the term. So really, I want to throw it out to you guys. Do we think growth in the online market has made consumers more comfortable with buying from D2C brands? Do we think there's space for more D2C brands and what do you think the challenges are for businesses that really want to set up a direct-to-consumer business? Well, starting small. That's all the big questions all rolled into one. Yeah. <laughs> all the questions. Um, no, I think from a, from a UK perspective or European perspective, you know, we've, we know that online has soared through the pandemic. It's accelerated all the trends that we were seeing uh, prior to the pandemic. And one of those was more direct-to-consumer purchasing um, and more brands engaging with that. Um, you know, you, you see that from the top and the bottom of the spectrum of brands as well. So, you know, someone like Levi's has had a direct-to-consumer, but I wouldn't even necessarily classify as that as direct-to-consumer anymore. That is a retail retailer in and of itself as, as well as being a brand. But I think where's been the big growth, particularly in food and drink and BPC and other areas, is those smaller brands that are engaging with sort of the online channel, getting themselves an audience, not necessarily having to go through the usual process of, uh, you know, putting themselves in front of the buyers, getting listed, getting on shelf. And that, I think, has really been accelerated just because of the success brands have had in that area. And I think, you know, I think this is probably only the beginning of that trend. Um, and the pandemic will only accelerate it further. I agree. I think it, there are different opportunities for the consumer side and then for the retailer brand side. And I think, as Nick said, that was accelerated because of the pandemic. What we're seeing in the U.S. is that the perceptions of shopping online are changing in a positive light, whereas maybe in pre-pandemic, it was almost considered like a backup option or, you know, something you did if you didn't want to go to the store, just had to like quickly replenish um, an item or a purchase. It wasn't necessarily the preferred form of shopping. And that has changed for a lot of people now because they think it's safer. They think it's cleaner. Um, there's just a whole nother element that's been added to the mix. So that's definitely an opportunity for more players 
entering that space. I think on the retailer side, um, a lot of retailers unfortunately learned the hard way about maybe how many stores they really do need and how online can actually be a better or um, maybe just more manageable way to really kind of make that direct contact with the consumer without relying on a like multi-store front, especially in the United States where you can have hundreds of stores across the country. Um, So, I mean, that said, it's a very crowded landscape and it's hard to stand out. Um, There's definitely oversaturation, but there is still opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. To Nick's point um, about lower barriers to entry for brands being online, I think that's definitely been one of the huge opportunities and contributors to growth in that DTC space, especially when we're thinking about the smaller digitally native brands um, that kind of seek to disrupt a particular product category. Um, But to Alexis's point, it is a crowded space um, and partnerships with retailers can definitely be leveraged and really with anything when we're thinking about branding. Um, It is about how well you know your core consumer base and how well you can communicate um, your key product and offering to them, which obviously experimenting with really innovative, community-focused, interpersonal forms of communication can overcome some of those barriers to operating dominantly online. Yeah, and I think Alex Alex said a really good word there, the sort of leveraging the sort of your platform and your audience. And actually, you know, we're not we're not taking the retailers out of the equation here. A lot of those D 2 C brands get their start there. They can leverage the community they have built to be able to then go to a retailer and say, "Look, we're proven. We have the audience. You know, you need to list us." And actually, at least from a UK perspective, that's what the grocers here, and indeed health and beauty retailers have been a lot better at in terms of engaging with those smaller brands and it creates more excite more excitement in store because you see brands that you've not seen before and i think the two sort of dovetail uh, quite nicely yeah that's a really nice segue into my next question which is about social selling um and so i want to throw it out to you guys to what extent are consumers actually buying via so directly via social media and how much of an opportunity do we think this is going forward? This is something I really believe in. To me, it makes a lot of sense for a younger audience, especially if you think about how the nature of shopping has evolved. This social media has really become like a modern day version of window shopping. That's where you're going to do a lot of that discovery, a lot of that research, whether it's on a brand, a product, you know, reading reviews, whatever. And it is a way to make the process a bit more seamless, in my opinion. Um, What we've seen is that while the percentage of people who are shopping directly through social is still small, it's growing. Um, It definitely depends on the site and the type of purchase. Uh, Something like a Facebook and Instagram has maybe more interaction than something like a YouTube, um, which also just depends on what kind of capabilities that social media sites are offering. But it is especially higher for some of those more visual, inspirational driven purchases like beauty, home decor, clothing. Um, So I definitely think as evolutions are made in terms of the capabilities that are being offered on a lot of these sites, which now there's things like Instagram reels and um, even like, like TikTok, which is a whole category that I don't understand um, not to make myself sound old. Um, but I do feel like that is the natural evolution of where things are going because that is the point of entry for a lot of shoppers, particularly younger ones online. Yeah. Yeah. I think, social commerce um, 
looks kind of on the surface like this revolutionary way um, of shopping. And in many ways it is, but it also in most ways it's building upon existing consumer behavior. Um, and so we know that social commerce in and of itself is already very popular in other markets, namely China. And so we can look at those as inspiration for growth, um, especially thinking about here in the U.S. and Canada. But we also know that due to the pandemic, um, according to our COVID tracker data in the U.S., 52% of consumers are spending less time in store and 49% are shopping more online. So around half are feeling both of those um, push and pulls. And so I think that's laying the foundation for the growth um, of social commerce in many ways that wasn't present necessarily to the same degree pre-pandemic. And so I think it can really clue us into eyeing the consumer behaviors that will lead to greater growth um, in social commerce, maybe that we're that we anticipate experiencing in the next few years to come. Yeah. And I, I think like another, you know, really important indicator of that is how much more seriously those social platforms themselves are taking commerce, you know, and the, the, that's not a benevolent move. That's obviously to drive revenue for them, but you know, something like Facebook shops or Instagram shops or bringing, you know, the retail experience that would often, you know, have a link to click through to another site in-house into the app is only going to accelerate that. And I think they're, you know, they've been smart about where the opportunity is. You know, they know big brands will advertise through them, but they will want to draw the audience back to site. But actually for those smaller brands who won't, you know, won't get on the first 10 pages of Google search results, let alone the first, which is the all important. They know that they can speak and build a shop and build an audience on platform. And that, you know, we've seen them, you know, in terms of some more supporting SMEs, that type of thing has been really important moving forward. And I think it's working, uh, you know, we've got our, um, here in the UK, we've got our COVID-19 one year on reports coming out in April and some early data from that suggests that, you know, or doesn't suggest, it tells us that 46% of people have shopped via social media since the pandemic began. And actually for 15% of them, that they've shopped more via social media than they did pre-pandemic. And so that's the sort of change. Obviously, we're all, you know, particularly in the UK, we've been stuck inside for a good good while now. We're, we're used to spending our time browsing social media and filling the hours. And naturally, opportunities to purchase pop up on that. So, you know, as all retail brands do, they follow, follow where the consumers are and where their audience are. And, you know, social is a huge part of that. I also think there's an opportunity for a smaller business, like a smaller retailer, smaller brand, thinking about social commerce, not in the form of like click to buy or like in-app purchasing, but more like DMing. Like I've heard of a lot of people who, you know, are trying to, we know that consumers are trying to support local small businesses and just being able to like DM someone, if, especially if the brand's like having like an Instagram live sale or something like that. And you can actually like talk to a person, you're still doing, you're facilitating that communication through social media, um, but you're not technically using like those like shopping capabilities. You're just really using it as a way to directly communicate. And I think that's a big opportunity as well. And it does make the process not only feel more personal, but feel more seamless, which is obviously the goal online. Yeah, 
Yes, so much of social commerce, I think, naturally integrates what consumers already do when they're shopping into a digital platform, like talking to one another, whether it's talking to a brand associate Mm -hmm. via DMs or talking to your own peers via DMs. Um, And also to Alexis's previous point, a lot of the focus on social media, especially when we're thinking about um, like Instagram or Facebook, like Nick mentioned, so much focus is on the visuals. And we know that consumers, especially when they're shopping online, will look for pictures and videos of a product, especially in product reviews. And so by, you know, kind of pushing that forward and being forthcoming with that content, um, you know, hopefully would expedite a sort of purchase decision from them. It has for me. (laughs) (laughs) Before we move on, I'm going to do a bit of jargon busting because we've had a couple of abbreviations in that. So SME, correct me if I'm wrong, you mean small and medium enterprises. I do, sorry. DM direct messaging, (laughs) just for anybody if they don't know. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case. And that leads me on quite nicely to next question, because I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit there, but I'm really interested in this idea of kind of the lines blurring between entertainment and retail. So I'm kind of thinking social media obviously goes hand in hand with that, but things like shoppable TV, things like that. Do we think consumers really want to engage this way? I mean, it sounds like Alexis definitely does. (laughs) Um, But do we really want brands to kind of be infiltrating that space as well is that what consumers want to me i think not just me as a consumer just my opinion is that um i mean what we've seen from our data specifically for online is that even as these purchases more purchases shift to e-commerce versus being made in the store the experience that one gets in the store like the desire for that does not go away so there is still a need to make the online experience something that is engaging and fun. Now, what that looks like, it doesn't necessarily have to be shoppable TV or something like that, but there are a lot of mediums or um, ways to kind of experience with making it an interactive and engaging experience, whether that's incorporating gaming, incorporating more social experiences, um, just doing something that gives consumers, especially while they are stuck at home, something to make it less tactical and a little bit more engaging to elicit more of that purchases, I think is important as we look at the world of retail, you know, evolving in a more e-commerce centric place. Yeah, I I think, uh, yeah, I certainly agree with all of that. I think it also naturally depends on the product and it's where someone like Amazon has been so, so successful in sort of capturing those sort of utilitarian purchases. I don't necessarily want an experience via Amazon if I need to buy toilet paper but i if i'm gonna buy a watch or a high you know uh, you know a high cost item i do want to do that as well and there's also the, the sort of importance from a uh, an experience point of view online you know a lot of purchasing online is you know naturally driven about convenience getting checked checked out quickly etc but when you purchase something quickly or spend you know not as long on a website as you would in store you naturally lose out as a retailer on levels of impulse purchasing so we had some interesting research i'm just finishing writing our christmas report here in the uk and on average uh, naturally there's a huge tick up in buying gifts online for christmas this year and on average those who only shopped online spent 351 pounds i'm not sure what that is in dollars or indeed the rest of the world's currencies but in terms of pounds um they spent 351 pounds on gifts now 
of the people who shopped online and in store, they spent £410 uh, on average on gifts. And that's natural. You know, you're going to be in store. You may see something else. You may impulse purchase, etc. So I think any kind of experiences that allow online retailers to increase the sort of dwell time, as it were, that people spend on their websites, uh, you know, the frequency of which they visit their website are really important. So, yeah, I think they do have, they do hold commercial value in that. It's not just a sort of added extra or a way to spend marketing budget. Yeah, I'll come at this question from a little bit of a different angle, um, thinking about the data privacy conversation, which is something that we talk a lot about under the rights driver, the trends rights driver, um, especially as we know that GDPR very much exists um, in the EU. And then we have a couple states here in the US, California and Virginia, who have passed similar level legislation of consumer data privacy regulation. And so paying attention to that space, I think really can clue us into what will be capable um, of retailers of technologies and also what is of interest to consumers. And so our digital advertising report, I think does tell a an interesting story in that regard where around close to a third of U.S. consumers say that they enjoy the ads that are specifically made for the content they're watching, but then the dip to 13% of U.S. consumers say that they prefer ads they can engage with and 12% are willing to give personal information for more relevant ads. So obviously we know that consumer behavior doesn't always match up with intention. Um, the convenience that comes along with sharing your personal data certainly is has become a big part Um of that consumer lifestyle, but I think it'll be a little bit more of a conversation um, with consumers about what they're comfortable with, especially in terms of commercializing, so to speak, much more of those technologies that may feel more intimate, such as a digital assistant that has a role in your home um, or a TV that didn't used to be active, was not, you know, previously giving you actions, but is now. And so um, within that, it'll probably be be important to give consumers a lot of um, choice within that regard about what they choose to engage with or not be capable at all of within their home. Interesting. I, yeah, I feel like it's an interesting debate, isn't it, in terms of what, how much you want brands and retailers to know about you, but then actually it just makes it so much more convenient and enjoyable and where's the line? But I think, it, as you say, I think it's very interesting, that idea of choice and making it easy for consumers to make that choice. Um, so on that note, I'm going to move the conversation along a bit and I'm interested in, we've, there's been so much hype over the last year about all the added tools that I feel like retailers have given consumers to help them shop online. So when I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about augmented reality to help people try on makeup or clothes or footwear or, you know, or things like virtual consultations. How do we see that evolving? You know, how important is that? to have those tools now for consumers to help them shop? I can go first. Everybody's <laughs> jumping to answer. Um, again, I think just like social commerce, I feel like the interest in it may be small in the beginning because I think it's about awareness and wanting to, or, or being scared to maybe try something new, I think for overall consumers, but there's definitely a pool of shoppers, especially more digitally native, younger consumers who are going to be more willing to do that. Um, I think it depends on the purchase. As Nick mentioned earlier, like if you're buying toilet paper online, obviously like, but you don't need to have an, an engaging conversation about that. But if you are trying to 
buy shoes. That is something that typically requires a lot of in-person tactile research with trying on multiple pairs of shoes. So how does a brand or retailer recreate that experience online without just being like, here are pictures? Because at this point, that doesn't necessarily cut it. So using something like a virtual fit finder or, um, you know, allowing customers to submit a photo of their their feet it sounds weird and then trying to figure out how does it best fit or what size would best fit them in their brand or their products um, that is really going to be important in not only engaging pre-purchase but really making sure that consumers come back because they had a positive experience because they avoid any kind of post-purchase frustration meaning something didn't fit it didn't work right now I had to return it and then it just creates more hassles so it is important I think it Definitely depends on the type of purchase, but I do think that it is something that as we are going to continue to see more consumers doing more types of purchases online, that it is necessary. I think it's kind of a get what you give, like was what we kind of have all been talking about, like how much am I willing to put in to get a better, more positive experience for me out of it. So it will not, it might not be something that every customer is willing to do. Um, but I think as that awareness grows, that interest will also grow. Um, but I do think it's important, especially for a lot of those, you know, purchases that really do require that, that research before buying. Yeah. Yeah. I think Alexis hit on a really key point about these technologies is that they must offer value to the consumer when they're making a purchase. They must have a practical um, use, at least at the onset when they're garnering, you know, awareness and adoption in the marketplace. And so one of the examples that I sort of like to reference is VR and how VR has been around for a long time and did, you know, have a slow, a very slow adoption, so to speak, and still is experiencing that very slow adoption. And it was most concretely introduced to consumers in the form of entertainment. And immediately consumers were like, okay, this is kind of, you know, a high barrier to entry. I have to buy this new hardware and learn how to use it. And how much is it offering to me in terms of, you know, accentuating entertainment versus these alternative means. And then we see VR having these really um, innovative forward thinking uses in medical cases and thinking about VR therapy um, for like senior level consumers and things of that sort. And so here we have a technology that found many practical uses. And those solutions are very relevant for particular sectors of consumers that will become accustomed to using that technology. And so I use that example to say that um, for consumers, they need to see why is this useful to me? Um, why should I use it? How effective is it? And then from there, hopefully it would naturally build to I will use this, you know, for leisure, I will use this for entertainment, but it really needs to have that practical use case first. Amazing. Just before we again move on, I'm going to say, but VR is virtual reality. I don't know if you, you might have said that, Alex, but just in case we, uh, we need to include that there. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to, again, move the conversation on a bit. I'm, I'm interested in the idea of kind of retail <laughs> membership and subscriptions. So this can kind of be anything from, you know, subscription boxes, things like that to, you know, retailers like Amazon has obviously done hugely well um, from its prime subscriptions. So what do you think is the kind of future of that space? Is there really space for every retailer to have that kind of subscription model? And how do we see that evolving? Um, I think, um, yeah, I think... 
so you know the obvious one in this in this conversation is Amazon Prime. You know, our latest Amazon research suggests that you know I think thirty five, thirty seven percent of people are personally Prime members in the UK. Uh, overall, fifty percent of consumers have access to Prime. You know, either sharing accounts or passing passwords or all those other potentially dodgy means of accessing it. And uh, you know, we've seen big growth over the pandemic in that area although interestingly not necessarily driven by free delivery it's actually been driven more now by prime video and the sort of entertainment aspects which is you know given the current circumstances natural as people spend longer in their home i think the the question you ask you know does everyone need a uh, a scheme such as that I, i don't think everyone needs a scheme such as that but i do think there is value in having a scheme particularly if you're a retailer that wants to trade on frequency of purchase greater engagement from customers you know if i if if i shop you know with you you know say i say i buy well, i was gonna pick a rolex then but i'm never gonna buy a rolex so let's say i buy a washing machine from uh, curry's here in the uk you know i might only shop with you once every three four years to buy those sort of big ticket purchases i don't need a delivery pass from you however if i shop with say jd sports or boohoo or asos or those fast fashion retailers where they're looking for me to make a purchase you know maybe when i was a bit younger uh you know weekly etc you know that then having a seven eight nine pound or dollar um delivery scheme makes a huge amount of sense and i don't think you know we see we've seen growth across all those schemes and more and more retailers are coming into that so i don't think there's necessarily a ceiling they just have to be pitched and priced right you can't expect everyone to pay 80 pounds for an amazon prime level subscription when you're not getting that you are getting free delivery so 10 pounds for the year makes a lot more sense I agree. I think to Nick's point, it's about streamlining it. Like if, if it is a membership that can truly make something easier for the consumer and bring value in the sense of some form of savings, but really streamlining all of your activity across all these different types of purchases, that's what is likely to garner the most interest. I think from the consumer perspective, um, obviously Amazon is huge here too, but in, I think August, August or September, Walmart also launched their, basically their version of, uh, of a loyalty program that is pretty much designed to go, you know, head to head with Amazon. It's Walmart plus, and I believe it's 1295 a month, um, for free next day and two day shipping, no minimum. There's also fuel perks. So if you go to get, gas for your car. There's some sort of benefit and savings there, um, delivery from the store, et cetera. So there's definitely, they wouldn't be getting into that space if there wasn't a consumer interest and demand there. And I think, um, you know, essentially everyone wants to save time and money. So that is the, you know, the reason for doing this. But I don't think that that means that like every department store here needs to do that. Um, or every, you know, beauty retailer, there are certainly have been loyalty programs that don't work probably because the frequency is not there um, or the amount of purchase is not there. So I think it definitely can work, but it has to be something that really does add value in the full sense. Totally agree with everything. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So on that note, I'm coming to last couple of questions now, but I feel like it's interesting to talk about delivery, order fulfillment and returns, which sounds like a really dry topic. But I think 
I think consumers are becoming more expecting and more demanding in that space. And then on top of that, I think there's a conversation around how any kind of sustainability interest kind of becomes at odds if you're constantly buying things online. So I think I'm interested to know what kind of impact you think that's going to have. Yeah, I think I think a big impact. I'm going to take issue with you saying that delivery and collection is not interesting. Logistics is fascinating, but, but maybe not. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I think what we've seen generally with the growth of online, not just since the pandemic, but the last five years is consumers become more aware of you know, what they're doing online, how that's impacting other issues, be it ethical or environmental. And I think, you know, that's only going to be, as we said at the start, accelerated by the pandemic. You know, data from our online retail report suggests just under half, 46% of UK shoppers say they worry about the environmental impact of shopping online. So, you know, that's a key concern. And we are seeing retailers address that. I think similar to the sort of trend that we saw well, that we continue to see in food and drink, this idea of food miles and cutting those out. And indeed, you know, maybe shopping more on a seasonal basis, you know, buying more of what can be produced in your local area. I think we're seeing that move into logistics and delivery as well. There's a lot more thinking around sort of moving distribution hubs closer to city, cutting down that delivery time, looking into alternate routes in terms of bicycle delivery, electric vehicle delivery. You know, last year, Amazon made the single largest purchase uh, or order for electric vehicles that has ever been made um, in, I suppose, the short time that they've been around as they look to move all their logistics to being electric. So I think consumers are really looking at it. And it's not just consumers here in Europe as well. There's a lot of talk around legislation, a lot of talk around government intervention, particularly in terms of city centres and pollution, but also the ethical side in terms of how much an online business is taxed. So I think, again, retailers are trying to get out ahead of that. And I think trying to ease those worries of consumers and indeed the powers to be around the sort of environmental impacts of shopping online. I think it's a difficult balance to strike because consumers want things when they want them. And that is pretty much meaning fast um, because they've been trained to know that they can get that. Um, and on the flip side of that, now we know that that to next point does come at this this cost of not being very environmentally friendly as well as other issues um so it's it's hard because i think retailers are you know in this difficult dance of trying to get consumers what they want when they want them but also doing it in a way that is responsible um i live in new york and something that has come out during the pandemic which i think is really interesting is this it's called cinch market it's basically a movement to keep things local in new york and not necessarily go to amazon um, and the way that it's structured is that you get same day delivery if you order by a certain time and this basically this system, they go all around to these partnering local retailers. So if you need food, if you need laundry detergent, if you need, um, you know, like candy, anything you can think of, basically anything you would go to for Amazon or go to Amazon for, you can get it fulfilled by all of these local retailers. And then one of these shoppers goes to all the different stores and puts your order together in one bag and then delivers it to you within that same day or early the next day. Um, so it's a more environmental friendly way of doing it because you're not paying for any kind of shipping. It's literally someone just like on their bike handing it to you. Um, and then it's also a way for it to stay local. Obviously that's not feasible everywhere, but my point is that 
there is a greater consciousness on the consumer end of um, what the cost of that type of free and fast shipping can can mean. Um, and there is an interest to do something about it. But um, again, it's a difficult balance to strike for the retailers. Yeah, I, I really like that idea because, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was writing a lot about same day delivery in, in groceries and, you know, how is that possible? Can retailers pick orders, etc. And then I was chatting to my family and my mom, used, my mom said, we get milk delivered every day, same day from yeah. you know, the shop down the road, this independent shop. And to Alexis's point, I think what well, the pandemic is more people have been shopping local and that's the trend we've definitely seen here in the UK. People have realized, actually, if that person can deliver, of course, it's going to come same day because it's right down the you road. Know, yeah. five, minutes, <laughs> five, five minutes down the road. So this idea that, you know, same day being a sort of unreachable barrier for most big brands is true. But that's because they're delivering from a central warehouse, you know, maybe two, three hundred miles away for a lot of businesses and particularly independents that can now become a USP. You don't have to wait two days for my order. I'll, I'll hand it to you um, from down the road. So I think that's it's a really interesting development and a sort of change in thinking around delivery. Yeah, so, so much. I feel like from the consumer side, so much of delivery and fulfillment that's based on access. How do I access your products and your services? What are the different ways that I can get them? Um, and I think Cinch Market, is that what it was called, Alexis? Yep. Um, is a very interesting example. An example that it made me think of is this new company called Olive, which bundles online orders together. And so they all arrive at your home, you know, in the same sort of you know package that is reusable again and so that you can put those products in it if you have to return something and so from a consumer side that increases convenience um that reduces packaging which is both sustainable but also now i don't have a bunch of bags and boxes in my apartment (laughs) and so there are always multiple angles to think about it from and you know this references other solutions that we've seen um or at least other initiatives that we have seen such as loop that you know brings together a lot of different retailers in order to you know bundle together larger um what am i trying to say like refillable packaging and refillable products um and so in that sense i think it's a lot about you know how conveniently and adequately can you access a lot of different products at one time other innovations that i think of are how consumers can access a store and so i think of toyota and their mobile retail that they are piloting in some markets it was set to have a big debut at the olympics um might still debut there not sure (laughs) um but so that was you know that was a smaller format of sort of mobile retail where they had you know different models um to suit different sorts of businesses or transportation and then there are other examples like out of a toronto-based startup called grocery neighbor um and they are piloting a fleet of trucks, like 53-foot um, semi-trucks that would bring groceries to neighborhoods that live at least 15 minutes or more away from the nearest grocery store. And the, the interest in that innovation or where they see that innovation going would hopefully be to adapt the SKUs that are held within that truck to that particular neighborhood's taste um, and the way that they shop. And so it's not necessarily direct delivery in that sense. You know, not all of your groceries are uh, arriving at your doorstep, but what does it mean for like the store itself to come to your neighborhood to increase that level of convenience and for it to be hopefully personalized to a certain extent. Um, And so I 
am personally very interested in more of these kind of, I guess, hybrid um, fulfillment options that really just kind of close the distance between a consumer and obtaining that physical good, whether it is in the form of an actual boxed up package or just a more convenient way of picking it up. Amazing. I mean, that all sounds very exciting. Mm-hmm. So I take it back. I take my <laughs> comment about it not being exciting back. <laughs> um, and so we're coming to the end now, but I'm going to put you all on the spot and ask for, before we wrap up, one example, one retailer, somebody that you think is doing e-commerce well. It's a very broad and feel free to say something that you've already said as well. <laughs> I can start. I will use my example <laughs> that I just gave with Cinch Market. Um, I think that is a perfect example of merging convenience, conscious shopping, um, variety, value, all of those things that really do drive consumers in general and especially online. Um, and to me, that is kind of where things are headed, With which it's still bridging the in-person, in-store experience and combining it with the value um, and the convenience of online shopping. Um, Obviously, I don't think it's necessarily feasible everywhere right now, but it is something that continues. It started in Brooklyn where I live and it has since expanded into Manhattan and into some other boroughs. So, and I know that that is like a huge anomaly, but if you can do it here, then you can do it other places. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's my example. I, I'm thinking a lot about how small and local businesses in general adapted very quickly to the pandemic. Um, and I think that is an attribute of being best in class, that adaptability to how consumers are wanting or able to shop from you. Um, an example that I'm personally thinking of, especially since Alexis brought up being able to DM brands on Instagram, <laughs> is there is this pizza company in Chicago um, called Five Squared Pizza, and they adapted from being a food truck, I believe, and so obviously not food truck right now, um, to you can DM them your order on Instagram, then you Venmo them the payment for the pizza, and you schedule the time to pick it up. And so for me, that is like the most convenient way to order pizza ever. <laughs> um, like I can pay them through Venmo, I do it all through Instagram DM, um, and you know, it's a very one couple that runs the business but again just kind of thinking about the different ways that consumers can purchase something from you um and this is definitely working for them they sell out every week um for their pre-sale and so i think they're doing a really good job of adapting that it's all about those dms direct messages exactly yeah direct messages um i might cheat and have more than one but i think alex mentioned it earlier um business here in the uk loop um which offers recycle brands but in recyclable packaging and they have now partnered with tesco so your shopping is delivered so coke in glass bottles everything else in sustainable packaging and they will come and collect that packaging and reuse it hence the name loop and i think you know their partnership with tesco is really impressive you know and the fact that tesco has embraced that hits on all those angles around sustainability being finding it hard to judge packaging online etc um and a similar vein there's a, a laundry capsule brand called small i believe that's how it's pronounced as you know shot up in the last year or so and that's really interesting just because well interesting to me at least in terms of uh, its packaging is specifically designed to fit through your letterbox but it is comparable to uh, big name brands and those bigger packages you see. So again, hitting all the convenience. 
Um, but to, to give sort of the big retailers a bit of credit as well, I think the most exciting thing here in, that I've seen is um, Douglas, which is a health and beauty retailer based in Germany, operating across Europe. Um, it's launch of its marketplace, which was pre-pandemic, but has really accelerated on there. And then, you know, it's just opened that up so other retailers can actually come on and sell through that area. And, you know, we know, we know Amazon is the most successful marketplace in the world, but it's successful in being a generalist. And I think what's really interesting is now these more specific marketplaces coming up. You know, we've seen it many years ago with Net-A-Porter at Luxury um, and, you know, Mano and Mano in terms of DIY. And I think these are really interesting because they give the same sort of breadth of range that you'd expect to find on Amazon, but with the expertise of that retailer and that brand in those areas. So there we are. I've gone from small to big in that area. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. And on that note, I'm sadly going to have to wrap things up. So thank you for joining us. And thank you to Nick, Alexis and Alex for joining me today. If you want to know more about Mintel, who we are and what we do, head over to Mintel.com. Follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, or check us out on our blog for even more insights from our analysts. Thank you again for listening. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And if you like what you've heard today, please do spread the word and look out for our next episode of Mintel's Little Conversation. 